coming from a nihilistic worldview of fiat where nothing matters, there's no meaning, we all have our own forms of truth. So, you know, just go off and do what you need to. Discovering again that there actually is the capital T truth and that there are things of permanence in this world, I think for most of us ends up becoming an event in our lives where we could say it's transcendental in the way of that we go, oh, like truth, truth does have meaning. Mm, it's revelatory. And, yeah, and that there, there is order to the world and that there can be real meaning. And then I think like it's also that like so magic internet money is going to save us from like the evils of fiat and that stuff. Like ha 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 ha. Like look at it. But then it's like you sort of like well, well what if it actually could? Like it's still growing and nobody's hacked it yet. It hasn't found any fatal flaws. People are building on it. What if Bitcoin actually could be that answer? Whoa. And the, like now you start to actually open up to the real possibility that maybe this thing not only does it have meaning, but maybe it's one of the most meaningful things we've ever encountered. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the world's first startup accelerator program focused exclusively on the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what is possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to Wolf nyc.com today to apply for the program or learn more again that is wolf nyc.com today i learned there's a difference between an, an lnurl and a lightning memo well I'm, i don't know what either one of those things are so. yeah exactly well so a lightning memo is specifically designed in order to be able to take a like a limited time payment uh-huh. where the lightning url is like a static constant address that you have on Lightning, and so my particular problem was that Moon does not have LNURLs and uh, Wallet of Satoshi does. So I just had to set up Wallet of Satoshi 
And then also, uh, my original private key that I used to verify myself, I can't get it to work again. And I'm pretty sure it's, uh, when you cut and paste into something, sometimes there's like a weird formatting thing. And so I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And so essentially that destroyed the private key. Gotcha. Well, so it's confusing early, but important, right? Just the Yeah, it's alpha for sure. Um, but it, I mean, the, the fact that if there was a company being built on it right now, I would join it just to join it. Like I've always been real big on that. If, if there's something going on that's really attracting people, hop on it. And so, so what's important to me is that like, I can say all of my insane, crazy shit on NoStar and like nobody can cancel me. Uh, oh yeah. Cause it's a private key. Basically. Yeah. Well, cause also like the wave is coming and it's going to hit me at some point in time, particularly now that I'm like writing this book. Cause I'm, I'm realizing like, I've pretty much gathered together like all of the heretical philosophers and been like, let's like read their stuff and figure <laughs> out what they had to say about it. Who is that list? Who are the heretical philosophers? Uh, de definitely Carl Schmidt, I think is like number one on the list. Um, Heidegger probably comes right thereafter. Uh, Nietzsche has been getting a lot better, but he, some people still don't like him very much. Uh, Leo Strauss specifically his relationship with conservatism. Uh, a lot of people don't like that he was part of the Chicago school and in a lot of ways educated the guys that were responsible for a lot of the atrocities that happened in South America in the 70s and 80s. Um, but these are all like tertiary relationships. And to me, it's always really important to separate the individual from the philosophy. Always. You know, and so Heidegger is a perfect example of that. Like he was an opportunist towards the Nazi party. He... You know, like Hannah Ardent was his student and he like had an illicit affair with her at the time. But it's funny because like he also wrote Being in Time at the same point in time. So Which is his masterpiece? One of the two, you could say. And then the second one, that's like the following masterpiece. Again, he got back together with her 30 years later. Right. Like after the Holocaust, which Ardent was involved in the Holocaust, put in internment camps, had to flee and come to the United States. And still forgave Tiger and began a romantic relationship with him when they were both married. So, wow. Okay. There's a lot of history. I had no idea about yeah. what do you, um, okay. I don't know much about Heidegger, okay. but it's someone that is inspiring a lot of what you're writing about in your book. Yeah. And this is like, a. I guess, first of all, title of the okay yeah so the title of my book is crypto sovereignty uh it's a compilation of, of essays that i've been working on in the last five years that's really been sort of my own questioning about what is money what is value how do all these things work together what's the idea of sovereignty how does it get issued and as i've worked through this i've started to come to realize that like these are extremely deep and important philosophical questions that have been really thought about you know since but, you know, pre-Socratic times, you know, and that that's why we've seen trees from people like Aristotle and onward just around money. You know, uh, Guy Swan today recently presents me to that. Uh, Emmanuel Kant, who we discussed in your last episode, he had another one that was about his idea of world peace. And in that idea, you know, governments can't issue money. And he, like, goes over this whole topic on it. Yeah, so, like, this has always been a well thought of and considered issue by philosophy but because we like live at the end of time where fiat has taken over everything we act like nobody's thought about any of this before uh, and what they've we've the problem's been we've always lacked the tool right to restrain humans from printing money for instance yeah I and mean, so there's always been all kinds of innovative and thoughtful ideas and ultimately uh, and this is one of the reasons that gold sort of maintained both its spiritual component in addition to its real monetary value was because this in and of itself as a substance, it could have particular limits and checks. 
But again, with the escalation of brinkmanship of the development of the state, they figured out, you know, essentially how to gut out the ability for gold to be a good storage of value. Yeah, so true. Okay, so the one thing I know about Heidegger, I hope this is correct, his definition of truth is that truth is unconcealedness. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we often say Bitcoin is truth. And I thought there's a few other definitions of truth that I also think apply to Bitcoin, but I thought that one was just brilliant. I mean, that's essentially what Bitcoin is, right? It's just, that's what open source software is, just unconcealed, right? You can inspect every component of it. Nothing can be hidden within it. There's no opportunity for information asymmetry. It's like uh, very just in that way. Uh, first of all, did Heidegger say that? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure, but not 100% sure. So Heidegger did say it. And Heidegger specifically uh, got it, I, I believe, uh, either Aristotle or Plato, please don't lynch me for getting it wrong. Um, and specifically, it's the Greek word aiotheia. Oh, okay. And, and so his whole, one of, one of Heidegger's big sti sticking points is that essentially the way that we've interpreted Plato's idea uh, is essentially an inversion of itself. And so aiotheia is this very important concept of unconcealedness because truth isn't this thing that we actually arrive at that we have, it's that we have to use modes of unconcealing in order to expose that. And so that has great importance, particularly in this idea of proof of work versus proof of stake. Real quick on that, the American pragmatist called truth the end of inquiry, which sounds like what you're describing, like we have to approach truth. You don't, you don't possess it with finality. Yeah, and like, so this same sort of difference is really important because if we, if we think truth is just the singular answer that we come to, we can sort of cut out the work and just go, okay, here's the thing that we have. We don't need to do the work, but it's about the journey. And so as we remove the various layers of the onion, that creates the openness that allows for us to actually see what the truth itself is. Right, right, right. So an ongoing process of discovery, and this is why the American pragmatists separated capital T truth, right? From the nature of ultimate reality, whatever that is versus what they called pragmatic truths, which just um, things that are true enough to be useful, right? And so you get closer to, maybe even the laws of physics probably don't describe the actual nature of the true laws that govern physical reality, but they do so with enough resolution that they're really useful, right? We can build airplanes, we can go to the moon, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so. Well, and, it, and I'd say on that same point, when we, when we follow the pragmatic sense of truth, there's a real capability for us to say, well, the, the truth is just what is in front of us. It's not this deeper, gigantic idea that we have to pour over and over and again, because like we can see what it is. And so Heidegger's approach was very interesting in the same way towards being, and that that's like his big question is, what is it to be? What does it mean to exist and to be? And so like you and I in exchange, we obviously we're here, we're physical, we're being like, this is it. But he and much of his work covers this, there's clearly this other experience of being that's much larger, much more encompassing, sort of the, the, the real answer to life, if you will. And so he, he spells that as being with a Y, B-E-Y-N-G. Oh, uh, okay, interesting. And so he's mostly using this to refer to this concept of like... Is that like the, the totality of our experience? Sort of, yeah, like the, the greater idea of what it means to be human and what it means for us to be as beings in the world and to operate on the same plane of existence, if you will, you know? And so like, uh, that smaller idea of truth, like that's just our everyday experience that we're caught in. 
but being with a wise, maybe the experience that we have where we're experiencing something in its truth depth that reverberates with us and starts to change us in the deepest of ways. And his latter piece, you know, called uh, On the Contributions to Philosophy or The Event, um, he goes much deeper into this concept of being and that he essentially thinks that there's supposed to be an event in human history where we come to the full and total conclusion of what essentially radical logic as a metaphysical thing, totally independent of us as beings, small being, B-E-I-N-G, that transforms us into beings as B-E-Y-N-G. And so, ah, okay. And essentially what my book that's going to come after Crypto Sovereignty is essentially the exploration of this topic around the event because after reading the entirety of the text, I'm thoroughly convinced that Bitcoin is the event. And it's not because it's going to like make us all rich or anything, but because this is the most important core concept to humanity that returns us to truth and particularly in our age of panoptic technology and governments escalating that this is literally the only thing that can rescue humanity from being captured inside the total non-truth and nonsense of fiat money the light at the end of a long dark tunnel mm -hmm. and so he actually uh, he calls this the triumphant return of being and so that, like in nihilism we, we need to go through nihilism and have it get darker and darker and darker until it's pitch black and there's absolutely nothing to guide us anymore. And that only from that place does the slightest shimmer of light from dawn start to shine that being can use to triumphantly return towards the light. And to me, that's what Bitcoin is. It is literally our tiny shimmer of light that we have to return to truth in the world because what it allows for us to do is to pursue truth through the proof of work mechanism that is truly about unveiling what the nature of reality is. And so it's only through discussions like this about money and value and wealth that we, we start doing the real work to understand what it is to unveil that fiat money is nothing more than an authoritarian and tyrannical decree. Wow. Beautifully said. It's, Fucking mind-blowing, right? It's amazing to me how long it could be mind-blowing. It's like I've been digging into the Bitcoin rabbit hole for like a solid six-plus years now, and it just keeps... It's mind-blowing. Okay, truth, then. I, I want I want a, more definitions of truth. So another one was uh, the very obvious one, just an accurate portrayal of reality. Sure. So the highest fidelity that we could get. Exactly. Observing what's occurring. And so we often say money is energy, money is time. Well, okay, it's this absolutely scarce resource, whether you call it energy or time, that we're trading with one another. Um, the perfect representation for that in a monetary sense would be uh, money with an absolutely scarce supply. That's what Bitcoin is, right? So it's another, like Bitcoin, it's an accurate portrayal of the reality of money as time and energy. It's, I think, the end of inquiry in the sense that capitalism and trade is kind of like this search, it's a search algorithm, right? And it's always looking for the best asset that's what made gold become gold. And I think, you know, Bitcoin's basically outcompetes that. And then unconcealedness, as we described earlier, what else, like, is truth just beyond words and we just have to describe it these different ways? Like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about something within the linguistic reality or is it something beyond us? I think the problem is, is that specifically like in our day and age of fiat and essentially uh, 
like in my opinion, like we're we're like several post generations after the conclusion of nihilism, which gives us this really strange mutated worldview. You know, that comes literally 50 years after the idea of the total subjectivity of truth. So like we're completely lost at this point in time. So we're in current total objectivity of truth. Yeah, and that that we the the way that the world is looking at it is that whatever my truth is my truth, whatever your truth is oh, your truth. Oh, That's why you currently know, you can you can be see say them. Sure, or, sure. Know, this uh, is postmodernism, right? And truth is relative. Yeah, but and we take postmodernism as being the truest form of reality that could be. And the, the problem is is that now language itself becomes this mess, you know, where Tower of Babel. Yeah. And so the in my opinion, we've talked about this before that like Bitcoin essentially returns us to truth through creating this radical form of semantical language that can only speak in a yes or a no. And specifically using that around monetary technology, this opens us up to something fundamentally and radically different from all human experience before, because now the self-sovereignty of being able to secure your wealth, the lifeblood that allows for you to live it's no longer predicated on any sort of a, a physical capacity. And so humanity's never seen that before. And then particularly, even us in this conversation, even all of us who grok it the most, none of this will have any of the substance or substantialness as it reverberating 100 years from now. It's only 100 years from now that it will be very clear that the cryptography of Bitcoin is secure, that no one will ever be able to guess those 12 words, no matter how much computational power that they have. And that because of this, now we get the truest form of capitalism, capitalism that's ever existed. And that, you know, and I, and I don't like that term capitalism because it, it, it's just free markets, right? Private ownership yeah. can't be robbed systemically. Yeah. And, and that even within that, there's going to be a number of sets and structures that are going to radicalize what the idea of i.e. capitalism looks like because there there's all these really weird socialist ideas that come with the marriage of bitcoin to this sort of form of total law and it's not like your bitcoin is worth the same amount as my bitcoin and that like you have the total access to the law that i have access to the law and that like and so it's sort of homogenizing and saying that like we're equals while it's this socialist concept because it's imbued inside of individuality in such a way, it's almost like uh, Bitcoin's taking these most radical parts of both socialist theory. It's a big fire. Yeah. <laughs> it's taking the most radical parts of socialist theory and the most radical parts of liberalism, like the power of the individual and the ability to communalize stuff, and then fusing them together in this strange thing that we would have never expected or considered I even thought of. That's funny you say that because I have a whole document. I'll hopefully write about it soon. Bitcoin is the unity of opposites. And I've got a lot of different pairings. But one of them was, it's kind of like socialism and capitalism in the sense that Bitcoin's effectively a public utility. Like it's universally accessible, mm -hmm. but it's used for the transference of private property. Yeah. So it's this like universally accessible, ultimate private property machine. It's, it's really interesting. Well, and the same thing with the the way that, you know, the value of our coins has a quality to each other. And yet, like, our individual... And the same thing, like, the individuality of our various, uh, you know, public and private keys are seen homogeneously throughout the system. You can't identify either one. Right, right, right. Interesting. Okay. what I have... So, I talked to Jeff Booth about this earlier, because I can't 
figure this out. So I'm just going to ask you kind of like a similar question. But Booth is probably my, one of my favorite people in terms of having this like overarching sight of what's going on. Wait till you hear our episode together. Jeremy can Talk test. It's like the episode of the fucking century, I think. It was really good. Jeff is Jeff is something else. Um, I just read this book, Flow. It's okay. about familiar with flow it. experiences. Yeah, I've read it. And um, yeah, I won't get into that really, but there's a, there's a section in the last chapter of the book that talks about the meaning of meaning. And so where I'm currently at in my intellectual journey is like etymology is so important. Like it's... A, Words are the best thing we have to try and map this infinitely complex, fluid reality, but they're very inadequate at the same time. Sure. And so you see our language constantly evolving and changing over time. I think you described Heidegger doing a lot of that himself, right? Oh man, you're gonna when you start reading some Heidegger, you'll you'll love it because like the, he is huge on this whole idea of tracing the etymology. Because like literally his whole overarching thing is about the etymology of the word truth and how we've misinterpreted that in such a way and the etymology of the idea and how we've misinterpreted it and how that's fundamentally skewed our worldview. I'm sorry, I digress. So I can't wait to read some of that. So towards the end of that book, Flow, there's a chapter, a section in the last chapter, I think, called The Meaning of Meaning or What Meaning Means. And so the author decomposes it into three separate definitions. One is uh, meaning as like the, uh, oh, the importance or the significance. So when I say like, what is the meaning of life, right? Like the bigger, broader philosophical meaning. There's also uh, the more simple kind of just intention, right? Oh, she means, well, I didn't mean to do that. It's like, were intentions and actions corresponding or were they divergent, right? So there's something about Mm -hmm. that between intention and action. And then the third one is uh, kind of the very dry, rational, orderly um orderly assemblage of information or or the orderly sequencing of information let's say so this could be like the definition of a word this could be uh you know when you write software code if you leave out one comma that that it has no meaning to the machine effectively Mm -hmm. so there's there's kind of this this dry sense of does it convey the message and so my my and like decomposing that word i'm like okay well what is bitcoin Bitcoin is just this perfectly sequenced set of information. Like it's the most orderly, inarguably, incontrovertibly ordered information in human history. Like one of a kind, nothing else like it exists. Can't dispute it. Can't. It just is truth. Again, and if we use truth as like an accurate record of history, then I guess you could say the Bitcoin blockchain is the closest thing to truth we've ever had. Hence why many call it the time chain. So there's a lot. Yes, time chain. Thank you. So there's a lot of meaning in the Bitcoin time chain in that third sense that it's super orderly information yet it is inspiring meaning in our lives right there's a huge philosophical semi-religious significance or importance this innovation seems to be having and so I'm like is there a connection here between like orderly information propagating from this tool that it just helps us order the contents of consciousness perhaps and that's how we experience meaning well, it's, fu- it's funny because like what it does for us is it actually verifies against our reality experience that like this orderliness does have meaning. And as we come to understand that, that starts to self-inflect on us. Because I mean, when when we first encounter, we're like, big deal. It's magic internet money. Who, who cares? Mm-hmm. Right. 
But then when you start to go, oh, like it, it's actually ordering based upon every 10 minutes, uh, this idea of a truth of exchange, that thing gets buried and can never ever be changed. And so coming from a nihilistic worldview of fiat, where nothing matters, there's no meaning, we all have our own forms of truth. So, you know, just go off and do what you need to. Discovering again that there actually is the capital T truth and that there are things of permanence in this world, I think for most of us ends up becoming an event in our lives where we could say it's transcendental in the way of that we go, oh, like truth, truth does have meaning. Mm, it's revelatory. And, yeah, and that there, there is order to the world and that there can be real meaning. And then I think like it's also that like, so magic internet money is going to save us from like the evils of fiat and that stuff. Like, ha, 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 like look at it. But then it's like you sort of like, well, well, what if it actually could? Like it's still growing and nobody's hacked it yet. It hasn't found any fatal flaws. People are building on it. What if Bitcoin actually could be that answer? Whoa. And like now you start to actually open up to the real possibility that maybe this thing not only does it have meaning, but maybe it's one of the most meaningful things we've ever encountered. Maybe it's the event. Yeah. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res three-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. You know, and, and it, it's interesting because the, the last chapter in my book, Crypto Sovereignty, deals with a different essay of, Car of not of Carl Schmitz, but of Heidegger's called The Question Concerning Technology. Uh, which was one of the last essays that he wrote where he was trying to understand like what's the quintessential essence of technology and he has this whole dialogue about essentially this difference between means and ends and how because we're not actually connecting the means itself to the ends that technology becomes this thing that controls us and that as it escalates that there's this very real and he calls it the danger that we can get captured inside of its in framing of the world which is sort of like its worldview that 
everything's just a standing reserve. You know, you're just somebody for me to have dialogues with. That water is just something for us to drink. The cab driver is just someone for us a to call. Utilitarian, to. something like that. Yeah, everything is just a soulless mechanization ready to be available at hand for us. And so when we misinterpret the truth of technology, which at the very beginning of the, of the essay, he says, if we understand the essence of technology, it will lead through language in a way that is extraordinary. Will lead through language. It will lead. What does that mean? To me, it's about the appropriate understanding of utilizing language in order to get us closer to the truth, as close as we possibly can. Instead of the obfuciations that we get currently in the nihilistic worldview of how, you know, we can put a billion words around truth and not necessarily get any closer to it. But we, you and I, we can look at a TXID and be able to say, oh, this is an actual valid transaction on the Bitcoin cloud chain. Like this is a true thing that happened and nothing can change that. And we've never had the linguistic ability to do that until now. This is it's fascinating because I think technology, or obviously language is a technology. We don't often stop to consider that, first of all. Like it's the OG 100%. open source software. We're running English right now. Very useful. Yep. Um, has, has some bugs in it. <laughs> has some bugs. Actually, okay, that exact point. If you had said that 25 years ago, English is a software that has some bugs in it. Maybe Maybe 50 years ago. A lot of people wouldn't really know what you're talking about, right? Sure. But the advent, the technological landscape changing, and now that we live in a software-dominated world, we say stuff like that all the time. Oh, it's a feature, not a bug. Sure. You know, so it's it's the technolo technology paradigm we inhabit is actually changing our language, our metaphors, the way we relate to one another. So is that what is that maybe something that Heidegger was getting at? Is like as we progress through technology, it changes language. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, Heidegger, unfortunately, is extremely esoteric. And so the, the first time I picked him up was like at the very beginning of my philosophical journey. I tried to read two or three pages of him and I was like, what the hell is this guy saying? And he is absolutely notorious in philosophy for speaking in a very oblique and obtuse way. And the, and the goal is, is to force you to read him over and over so that eventually you start to go, oh, okay, stuff is clicking. So it was only after my progression through Giorgio Ambigen, Emmanuel Levinas, a, a bunch of students of Heidegger's that I finally returned to him and I was able to grok some of his stuff. That's often really useful, studying the students. Yeah, and, and, so, and I never thought that I would appreciate or value Heidegger in, in the way that I did. And so specifically in this piece concerning, on, on the question concerning technology, in my reading of it, What's really happening is that Bitcoin is essentially, it's this next evolution in the technology of language that allows for us the access to the linguistic tools that give us a perfect high fidelity view of our economic transactions with one another, which specifically in our globalized capitalist world, this now becomes the most monumental event in human history because now all people everywhere have access to a global fair monetary system that cannot be debased and rob them huh it so is the event and the so the event was potentially bitcoin and the danger as you described people looking at the world in a very utilitarian sense right everything's a resource waiting to be extracted that sounded to me a lot like the fiat mentality yeah it's a very zero sum you know my wins your loss kind of thing um i don't know have you explored that is is 
fiat maybe representing the danger to some extent, or maybe it's the fiat war machine? Well, I think it, I think it's the technology of it. And so like we can think of fiat as being a very specific kind of technology that was developed for real reasons around a state of emergency and that we needed to be able to control money in these things. And so to me, the danger up- It's always, that, always a state of emergency. Well, we'll, we'll get to Carl Schmidt in a minute <laughs> who, who, who gives us more on that. But uh, he specifically pulls this from a poem from a famous German philosopher, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, or not philosopher, but poet, uh, Holderin. And he, he has a poem and in it because Heidegger's very big. And essentially, this is where me and him branch up. He essentially thought poetry was the methodology that we were going to be able to access language in a different way that would get us closer to the truth. And while I think that still has merit and truth to it, we go off in this radical different direction of using hyper language of cryptography in order to speak in a way that gets us closer to truth. But so in it, he, he has this line from a poem where it says, in the danger, the saving power grows. And to me, that indicates the whole lineage and development of fiat. Like we had to go through this in order to get to Bitcoin. Like if we were still on a gold standard and Bitcoin was produced into the world, it would be like, eh, well, no big deal. Like everybody still use gold. I can secure that just as well. But it's only after this long end of having money printed, being told it's for our benefit, watching inflation, watching billions of people lose their wealth. It's only from here that we can finally recognize the true danger that is fiat. And in the same way, in the recognition of that danger, we can see that the saving power is having a fixed monetary supply that no one can have control over, that can't be debased. And the only reason that we understand that to the full veracity that it is today is from all of the prior crises and all of the prior failures that led up to here. Is it? Is there some irony here? Maybe I'm overreading the situation though, because cryptography itself was born from warring states, right? Trying to send messages without. Yeah, uh, no, the, this is like irony so the whole way down. Fiat really got us, and I, World War One and Two were scaled by fiat effectively. Yeah, I think a lot of the modern cryptological tools came out of. Yeah, all of it. Like the the like fundamentally the computer was developed for crypto analysis. That's why we made computers. You know, and the the entirety of World War II and the development of cryptography through World War II, like we literally developed computers so that we could hack the Enigma code. And then after that, through the what I like to call the hyperstate, which is what comes immediately after World War II. Shout out imitator get imitators game? Imitation game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. I like that. Um, but so anyways, now we have this, the hyperstate, which most of the economy is committed towards. And we can do huge amounts of R&D and development. And so it's only through fiat that we got the development of the internet, which then allowed for the development of public key cryptography as we have it today. And so there is this very weird irony that the only reason that we have Bitcoin is because of the way that what the you know that the world wars happened that fiat money was issued and wrecked and destroyed the ability for us to have self-sovereign wealth and then through its issuance and all these things and and as i read into this stuff it's all of the deepest of ironies you know because it's like it was only through those developments that we got cryptography that it was released into the wild and now that like you and me who may not be like the most technologically savvy we can be like derp like here i'm using like 
unbreakable encryption because like i can push some buttons yes right you know and the state's like well even if like we commit all resources towards trying to you know get after eric we can't there's 12 words we can't get is that potentially that was i think you said heidegger described the dark abyss that we would go into before we got into utter darkness Mm -hmm. and then you would see the small light start to grow do you think that is a description of that like going into the 20th century going through world war one world war two potentially going into world war three right now whatever flavor that comes in are is that the progression into the abyss and then maybe bitcoin is the light that's shining there i think so and i mean i also think very specifically in that um like one of the most powerful things is that like this is our choice right now like we can choose Bitcoin or we can choose fiat and both are going to have very radically different outcomes for where we're at. And to me, like that's, you know, that's really one of the most beautiful things is that like we occupy this very, very unique standpoint in human history where I very strongly believe that there, we have two choices. We can have Bitcoin and a radically different worldview where, you know, we, we get this new form of capitalism that frees everybody. There's self-sovereignty across the board. It's great. Or we get central bank digital currencies, global panopticon. It is a boot stomping on a human face. And, and to be clear, like, that's forever. It's not like a temporary thing that stops because the kind of technology that we're dealing with is so hyper-powerful that we literally don't have conceptions to be able to deal with just how powerful the technology is and how few people can use that to guide everyone. Wow. Yeah, it's okay. shit. So and I mean, like, pressure's on. Just yeah. the, the fate of the world hangs in the balance. Well, I'm like, I, in all honesty, like, I, and I, and in my book, I have a piece called Bitcoin is Messianic. Like, I literally believe that Bitcoin is Messianic because the way that I see it, there is nothing else that can rescue us from this. It produced itself in this very, very small window that somehow was so miraculously gathered together by Satoshi in the most perfect of ways that uh, I like to describe Satoshi as being the greatest artist who ever lived and who will ever live because of the way that he gave us the piece of art that we call Bitcoin that is so beautiful and so inspiring and so monumental in what it is that it literally transforms the entirety of the world through us looking at that, pouring over it, thinking about it in the same way that we would do with a piece of art right. that really tr- moves people. Right, right, right. You know, and I, I think you and me would be of a class of people that like, we are people that appreciate the art of Satoshi so much that as we go over it again and again, it keeps unveiling new truths to us. Yeah. The rabbit hole. I mean, that is his masterpiece, right? Yeah. What, um, you said something earlier about Carl Schmidt. You said you were going to go back to it. Oh, yeah, because you, you had said the sovereign exception. Yeah. So, yeah, one of my, and I got this from you, I think. One of my favorite quotes as it pertains to Bitcoin is from Carl Schmidt. Hope I'm saying it right. Sovereign is he who can decide the exception. Pretty close. The The sovereign is he who decides the exception. And that was... That was his opening line to political theology, which was sort of his main political treatise that like put him on the spectrum in Weimar Germany, which was essentially about um, uh, essentially that that politics in and of itself is this very radical concept that that the sovereign 
through his ability to pick and choose who the enemies of the state and who the allies of the state are, they can ultimately use a state of exception in order to to suspend laws to go after their enemies. Ah, uh, okay. The state and, of emergencies. Yeah, and, and what's so like poor fucking Carl Schmidt? I mean, uh, like, look, he was a Nazi. He collaborated. And I do think that he should have been hung at Nuremberg. But with that being said, um, he specifically wrote this piece in Weimar Germany as a reference to uh, President von Hindenburg at the time to specifically utilize the state of emergency to ban both the Nazi party and the communist party because they were both getting so powerful in Germany at the time. So this was literally his treat to try to save Weimar Germany. So what happens is actually Hitler comes to power and uses the same thing to suspend all of the parties. You know, and then poor, I don't want to say poor Schmidt, but Schmidt seeing the changing tides and becomes the opportunist that he is after the night of long knives where essentially uh, the SS betrayed the SA and they killed a bunch of people internally. He provided the defense for why that needed to happen and why Hitler was the sole leader who didn't need to utilize laws anymore. It was just his decree. And that was the same thing that was used to arrest him and potentially have him be in the Nuremberg trials, but they felt there wasn't enough evidence for him to do it. So Schmidt moved back home and I'm pretty sure he like died living at his parents' house, kind of seen as a loser. Wow. Wow. So developed a tool that could have stopped the rise of Nazism and communism, but then that tool was used against. Yeah. Essentially the Nazis appropriated that tool for themselves because because in a, he's, he's making a very strong critique of liberal democracy and that the very ability for the president or uh, the chancellor to be able to declare a state of emergency, like all of liberal democracy can be torn asunder under that. And since then, like we've become deeply present to it. And so like, uh, I didn't just one day be like, I want to study philosophy. Let's like check out the Nazis. No, no. Like uh, I came about him through a philosopher, Giorgio Ambigen. And cause to me, like the, like my starting point for my burning philosophical desire with Bitcoin was, I was like, this machine is maintaining its oath to itself in a way that like no institution, no human being, no government can do. Like, how is that even possible? So I just started to like do some Google foo about like the philosophy of the oath. And I found a piece of Giorgio Ambigen's called uh, The Sacrament of Language, The Archaeology of the Oath. And in this, he essentially, he traces the etymology of the oath and in the end, essentially what he concludes is that the oath is specifically derived from when uh, magic, language, and law were fused into a single object, where when you took an oath to the gods, like that was a literal legal contract that you were making between you and God. Uh, and so... Yeah, they took oaths very seriously in the Bible, right? Like when someone would give up their birthright, it wasn't like something they could just take back. It's like once they yeah. said it, it was like, it was final. Yeah, and so when you broke your oath, you are now outside of the purview and the protection of the gods. You became known as a person in ancient Rome as homo sacer, which means the forsaken man. And so anyone could kill you at that point in time, and you know, not against the law. The only thing that was forbidden was you couldn't be used in human sacrifice because, again, you were outside of the protection and purview of the gods. So that was not acceptable for you to be sacrificed to them. Uh, and so... Through reading Ambigen, I eventually read the entirety of the Homo Sucur series, and he's who introduced me to Carl Schmidt. And specifically, he has a book in the Homo Sucur series called The State of Emergency, where he does a deep analysis on what is this state of exception that gets initiated with a state of emergency. 
And he, he called it the state of emergency, the state of exception. Uh, there's some very particular German terms that go with this as well uh, that I'm not going to try to say because I'll butcher it too bad. But his entire point is saying that when we start to realize the state itself is just its legal decrees that it makes, we actually start to see that it's just sort of a, a rogue force of, of true lawlessness and that it, it is a kind of law that is about its own general opinion about what's going on. And so even though we have rights and you know, a constitution that protects us, that can always be destroyed with a state of emergency. And we have an entire history Re of 2,000 years yes. of that kind of stuff go on. And a very acute recent history of seeing it take place across the world as well. Yeah, and so Ambigan, for example, he he's a well-known philosopher. He used to come to the United States frequently, but after 9-11, they wanted his biometric information to be able to come to the United States. And he was just like, no, I'm not. This is a line for me that I'm not going to participate in. And then he continued writing about the idea of homeless occur, but in a different sense, adopting a concept of Foucault's called biopower, which is essentially the idea that now the state doesn't see us as self-sovereign individuals, but we're all part of a homogenized population that we're all part of a data set that they need to do things to that that everything becomes a quantitative, or how Heidegger would see it, everything is a standing reserve, that there is no humanness anymore. Wow. Wow. So there is a connection then between that, the danger and fiat, right? Yeah. And so I think that that, that specifically where we're at is uh, this fiat mindset, particularly with data and surveillance and monitoring, there's almost this idea now that like, well, if we can collect as much information as possible and use that to sort of gamify people into behaviors that we want, well, why shouldn't we do that? Don't we want the most placated population that's going to participate and be good little citizens? A docile tax farm. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Woo. Um, there's a book called, I haven't read it yet, Heidegger and Asian Thought. I don't know if you've picked that one up, but... Um, Did Millerman translate that? I think... I'm so. not sure, but... It, uh, and also through Verveke, I've learned that there's a lot of parallels between his thinking and like Taoist, I guess, philosophy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been down any of those rabbit holes yet. No. No. Okay. Um, but the, the book that you're talking about, uh, do you know, is it by Alexander Dugan? Okay. I just have it sitting on my shelf at home. Because Alexander Dugan. That was going to be my introduction to Heidegger. Okay. Because I've read some stuff on Taoism, so I thought it'd be a nice segue. Okay, well, Alexander Dugan, because uh, I, I feel like he's the one that wrote, like, ethnosociology, and he's he's had the most, uh, like, he, he's a huge academic and produces tons of work, and so I, I feel like he must have done that, and he's an interesting figure, because actually in Russia, he, he presented something called the fourth political theory, which is an adaptation of Heidegger's concept of being, and his conclusion is essentially that various peoples of the world, whether whatever sort of sociological identity that is, not ethnic, but something else, that they all need to find a solidarity amongst themselves to resist the the sort of aborted liberal global order that's currently around. So so it would be interesting for you to read the fourth political theory, because I think that, that that's the most digestible of Heidegger's work adapted to modernity through the concurrent liberal world order. Does he write much about after the event? Like if you're right that Bitcoin is the event, does he talk about what he anticipates happening after? And or would there be some signs in the world maybe that you could look to and be like, oh, look, maybe this thing actually is the event? 
Well, he's pretty pedantic about like the the event itself is only recognized long afterwards. Ah, okay. And so he he also talks about what he calls the last god, where like essentially the implementation of the event unveils this final god, if you will. And so to me, like that, what that final god is cryptography proving itself to have the security and value that it has over time. So that, you know, when we're five, eight, ten generations deep and people are still trying to hack Satoshi's address and no one has been able to do it, that they're finally able to be like, oh, like this thing's rock solid. Like we're not we're not getting through it. Like it this truly is something that we know is true and is the last God because like Satoshi's fortune that was created, you know, five hundred years ago is still sitting there waiting for anyone to be able to break cryptography in a meaningful way. Wow. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. That's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> Like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. 
It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. What do you think? Like, what do you think this looks like? What, what kind of world are we going into? It definitely seems like it's getting darker before the dawn. Yeah, like, it's interesting. I oscillate between positions on this because, like, uh, and again, like, in my darker thoughts and also in sort of the more astrological stuff that I approach, like, I do actually think what's happening. Astrological means having to do with the end Dealing of, with the end of time. End of times, okay. Um, and so, like, the, this is where some of my stuff gets really interesting and uh, pretty out there, but that's the sort of thought that I like is that I actually think what we're watching is the initiation of the ends of time. Um, and actually a concept that I got from Carl Smith called the Kachion, which, uh, in ancient Greek, that means he, he who with, withholds, he who holds back. And so there's this idea that essentially the state itself, like is the Kachion because it's what withholds the antichrist from producing himself in totality. And so I think what's happening, particularly with WEF and global surveillance systems is what we're watching is the state starting to unveil itself and pull back for this larger global world organization that I actually think is like the unveiling of the Antichrist. And I actually think that while I could see calling it the Antichrist is pretty triggering for people, what I see is a global surveillance object that wants to know everything for itself and itself alone in a way that very similar, you would see something trying to behave and perform like God. Right, right, right. And so within that, as this technology escalates, as it deploys itself, as it's trying to monitor Mark, surveil everybody, that's sort of the mark of the beast. In addition to that, now we have Bitcoiners out there who realize that we can utilize not just Bitcoin to economically transact, but cryptography on a whole. And like No Star is a great example of this. Like this is, this is people using public key cryptography in a pretty novel and interesting way to create a robust new communication system. And I think we're going to see more offshoots and test areas like that so that as the surveillance state becomes more and more powerful, it's going to become clear that these aren't even governments anymore. This is some strange rogue apparatus that just wants to control everyone for its own benefit. And I think as that comes to present itself, this all seems to be very close to the Christian ideas of the end of times. In addition to the fact of that, um, in the same way that this rogue surveillance apparatus is trying to catalog and monitor everything about us, we meanwhile have Bitcoin that's like cataloging, monitoring, and surveilling everything that we're doing, but in this very positive way. It's just about our transactions, the truth of that, the ability, the private key. And so in a lot of ways, I see essentially what Bitcoin's time chain becomes is this sort of book of judgment, almost as you will, of who's participating in a meaningful way in Bitcoin to, to help each other and aid and to provide for each other. Because as this crazy thing escalates, I think we're essentially going to be, look, there there's us and them, and we need to stick together and utilize each other. And it's like, oh, I can see you've like interacted with people on the Bitcoin blockchain. You've shown me your public addresses you've used. Like you're, you're somebody I know and can trust that isn't part of this system out there. Um, wow. That so is, that's all just like my batch of crazy stuff. That like is mind-blowing. A whole lot to give on. But, but like, so so we're talking about, forgive me where I'm wrong here because we're definitely off in the deep end, but the classical definition of God, right? Omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, right? Be everywhere, know everything, be all-powerful. 
that seems to be what the state apparatus is aspiring toward, right? Mm-hmm. The surveillance state. It wants to be everywhere, know everything about you, be all powerful. But I guess you're saying there's a counter force emerging, which is Bitcoin, that is sort of exhibiting some of those qualities too, right? It It's everywhere. It knows everything that's happening within its own. Uh, what did you say? I tweeted, I quoted you the other day in a tweet. Oh, it's the self, super language thing? Yeah, it's self-recursively. How did you, what's that? First. Oh, I, I couldn't re-say it right now. But it's basically, it's recursive on itself, but everything within itself is fully validated. Like, it's pure truth. Again, we've said that a million times. So is that what you see these, like, competing? It's like the same type of instrument in a way, but one has yeah, been, to, like been toward a malevolent end, and this has been towards a benevolent end, something like that? Yeah, that, that's kind of what I'd say. And that, like, as things escalate between each other, like, those those difference between the malevolent and the benevolent are going to become sharper and more stark and more clear for everyone to see. Um, And on that same note that like this malevolent thing over here, that's essentially trying to make itself into a God, it will never ever be able to be because of the very real human reason that we can always hold secrets to ourselves, Mm. you know? And like, this is sort of this ontological thing that I think is very important that I've gotten from Heidegger and is also why the title of my book is Crypto Sovereignty is that like, that's the secret of Bitcoin and how it empowers us is our ability to have a secret is true sovereignty in and of itself because now we have a choice about what we're doing. And as we said with Carl Schmidt before, he who makes the decision is the sovereign. And the so, exception. Yeah, he, yeah. he who makes the decision has, bleh, I'm butchering my own stuff. <laughs> uh, That's well, and so now with this idea, we truly are empowered in a very new and radical way that we've never seen before. And it's made by our ability to keep a secret and the profoundness that that secret has. Because, you know, if I share my 12 words with you, it's no longer a secret and it's compromised and it's valid. In the same way that, like, the the idea of us loving our God as our own secret and our own things that we hold to ourselves, this is the whole way that the world truly works. And so no matter how powerful or strong that thing gets, it will never be able to be a God. In the same way that just individual subjective choice truly is what, is the sovereign empowerment. That's a super interesting um, aperture to look at Bitcoin through. I'd never thought of it about the importance of secrecy. Because again, back to like war times and fighting, like that's almost also premised on secrecy, hence the emergence of cryptography. Yeah. But it's like Bitcoin sort of bending this ontological superpower we have to keep secrets from one another, but bending it to our own, to human flourishing rather yeah, than to human destruction. It, yeah, it's a very interesting trick to essentially utilize the... Ability. It's like a judo move on human nature. Yeah, like a keto. Yeah. You know, because like they're trying to use force and it's getting redirected against itself. Wow. You know, and so it's a, it's a profoundly powerful thing because it... And in that same way, it's like the, the quote unquote selfishness of like us wanting to, you know, economically benefit ourselves with holding Bitcoin and utilizing and collecting it. Same thing. It gets a ketoed on itself. You know, like it turns out like that's like the best thing I can do for you with you holding your wealth in Bitcoin, you know? And like, as you're saying, like there are all these interesting tensions of opposites that are getting represented that uh, essentially it's causing for a Hegelian dialectic where you take the thesis and the, the antithesis, they combine each other and synthesize into something totally new. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about how, and like the, this will probably be like the third book that I'll have to like uh, probably 
there's a there's a philosopher named Michael Millerman. He's like a as far as I can tell, he's kind of the West leading philosopher on Heidegger. So I'll probably need to like get his help with helping me on this or something. But Heidegger has this idea of that there's like the fourfold ways that like all things present themselves. And so like the most natural, so like the idea of, uh, uh, say a chalice, for example, like when we, when I say like, think of a chalice, there's a very specific idea that you have a chalice of, it's like a goblet, it's gold, it's designed to hold wine, you use it in ceremonies. Like all of those things particularly come into the development of how and why we say that that thing itself is a chalice. And so to me, when we say Bitcoin is money, what's really happening is it's gathering together these very important concepts in a unique way that makes it the most money that a thing could be. And I think like, and I haven't figured it all out yet, but it seems to me it's something about like gathering, it, it's like unifying energy and subjective choice together along with like, like the, the ability to retain a secret and the choice of unveiling that as this like presentation of sovereignty. I don't know. I, I haven't figured it all that's, out yet, That's like, the unsorted territory or the unexplored yeah, territory. This is, I get, get high by myself. Go, <laughs> Whoa. Let's, write, let's write this down. Okay. Uh, look, on that thread though. So asking the question, what is money to a lot of people and talking about it and thinking about it a lot. It's like you have a show about it. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> what? Um, I, I don't know if I've drank too much of my own Kool-Aid or what, but it's it sort of starts to look like a structural metaphor for reality. Mm-hmm. And what, and again, I'm going to struggle to say this, but um, the nature of words, you know, we're, we're slicing and dicing this fluid reality up into little data packets that we can then transfer back and forth. They're static, right? Words, I mean, they, the definitions change over time, but at any one moment, the expectation is the meaning I'm assigning to a word is the meaning, roughly the meaning you're assigning to the word. So we're using little static mapping tools to deal with something that's like infinitely fluid and complex. Um, in that world where everything's infinitely fluid and complex, everything affects everything else. This gets, for me, this is like when Plato talks about all procession as also a reversion mm-hmm. or when Newton says every action has an equal and opposite reaction or Viveki talks about reciprocal reconstruction. Like every time you interact with something, uh, or or mimesis, right? There's the book, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. When humans interact, we're basically just imitating one another. Sure. So who you're interacting with right now is this amalgam of everyone I've ever interacted with across time as they are for, so it's like we're this networked thing. So we're like trying to describe that whole big fluid reciprocally reconstructing reality with these little static words. And that's the struggle in a way, like we can never the, yeah, wor- the words are never sufficient, right? To capture the, the, the truth as in the ultimate nature of reality. But money is like kind of a metaphor. Like it's because everything's always exchanging with itself, right? Not yeah, with itself, it's- with other things, but in exchange, both things are changed, whatever you're choosing to frame as things. I hope that makes some kind of sense. Yeah. Well, and it's really interesting because, uh, so like in terms of language and, you know, so we have these like this rather limited and, poor language concept of English that we can use to talk and exchange about this stuff. But then, uh, you know, for example, like put your money where your mouth is. Now we have money that can sort of speak in this different way. And what's very interesting is that like, if money had the high fidelity that, you know, even gold has, 
the world would be very, very different from a fiat-based world because like now, now the base language of money, for example, it's not getting screwed with all the time and manipulated and changed. Yeah. And so one of the great problems is even though we have money and, and money can act as this uh, very powerful object that understands you know, the cause and effect change, if you will, because of fiatism, that distorts the entirety of what's going on. And by cutting out fiat and replacing it with Bitcoin, now that language has a much, much greater fidelity to it that allows for it to operate in a much more meaningful way. Again, returning to meaning, you know, and, and that it is more meaningful because in that exchange, it has the total high fidelity of, you know, I, I, I know the staticness of the Bitcoin system. I know that exchanging with Rob, it belongs only to him, you know, and right now when we interact with fiat money, there's all of this tertiary stuff going on that we're not actually thinking about. And that, you know, we very much have this authoritarian mindset that kind of magically pushes that away of that. If I give you a hundred dollars, it's worth a hundred dollars. That's going to be static in time, yeah. which we know just isn't true. Right. That's a great, that's why well, I said this on a tweet recently. When you understand that across time, $1 does not equal $1, but one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, then you will understand mm -hmm. right, that we have this static object through time that we can't change or corrupt or it's like the ultimate denominator, right? If you're going to have a frame, the nature of rationality is the ratio, right? You have the numerator and the denominator or the thing you're evaluating and the frame through which you're evaluating it. We need this fixed denominator to have like economic rationality. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would go even further. Like that, that's just reality of the world. Like, the, yeah, back to the structural metaphor. Yeah. Like the, like there is a single world. So that's my question. Is Bitcoin, is there something about Bitcoin that's telling us something deeper about the nature of the universe? Like, is there something structurally about Bitcoin that parallels something in ontological reality that's making it so useful? And if so, what do you think that thing is? Uh, I think it's that truth is a thing of this world that has meaning, that there is truly finite resources available on this one earth that we all share as people, and that we no matter how much we believe that we are of different nationalities or of different creeds or different religions, we're all participating in this one global world economy where everything we do affects, you know, there's a butterfly effect that ripples outward. And that as much as the states have told us to hate and deny that, and that we're our own little bubbles, it's just not true. And now particularly that we have the internet, this ex like, it can't be emphasized how radical this tool is. And the fact that you and I met through it, that a lot of our relationships here are predicated through it, that people that we've never met, that we don't know, and we probably never will know are listening into it and hopefully having their mind blown through conversations like this. And that, that that's truly the connectedness of the world. And that Bitcoin gives that back to us in such a pure, unobstructed way that to me, like, that is literally a transformational thing to say, now the entirety of the wealth of the whole world through the rest of human time can be shared together. And so that when, you know, like I, I think you and me growing up in the same time, like it, I have a chip on my shoulder about property. I can't go buy a 200 acre ranch and have any money left over, you know, like the, this whole world has been occupied through the, 
those who came before us not honoring and respecting us as being equal participants in the world. And so with Bitcoin, we can graciously bow to those who come after us, the future ones, and say, I love you and respect you enough as a human being who will come into this world and participate that I want you to share in the wealth of the world equally to me. That just because I came before you doesn't give me some automatic right towards it. You know, and I think, I think all of these things as we contemplate it and pour over it, um, you know, and with the, the title of what your show is, What is Money? To me, one of the things I've gotten from Heidegger is pouring over the same question over and over. Like that's truly what thinking is. It's not coming to the answer. It's considering all the different angles, all the inquiry that we can, having to try to exhaust it and exhume it over and over to really see is, is what we think actually the truth? Is it actually what we think it is? And that's the real process of thinking. It's not the right answer. It's doing the work. Doing the work. To find the right Proof answer. Proof of work all the way down. Dude, this is a brilliant, mind-blowing conversation, per usual. I feel usual. like we just went on a tangent. <laughs> you were going to talk more about Jeff Booth, and we just like went on an insane tangent. Uh, no, I don't know. I think you answered oh. it. I think you answered a lot of my questions really well. I do want to ask you, though, from a personal standpoint, what's your writing habit like what are you doing i i'm struggling with my own frankly so i just wanted to like if you got any pointers please uh i think my my best start for writing comes by me after the kids are down nights relaxed i roll a nice fat joint i smoke <laughs> the whole thing through and then i put on great music that i really like and my mind will take me on this kind of crazy throne journey and in it i get these really great little nuggets that taking that nugget later when I'm sober, the same thing at night, but now I'm just not integrating the joint. Yeah. And I just plug that idea in front of the computer on me. And then I do my best to sort of flesh out and work through it. So you do exploratory phase when you're inebriated on cannabis, and then you take the nuggets you find there and work on them when you're sober. Yeah, and I keep those. It sounds pretty, fun. Actually. I keep them pretty separate because yeah. I try to like work on it meaningfully. I, I mean, it's a little like this conversation. We go off onto these tangents that just kind of like go forever, and you're like, wait, well, I started somewhere else entirely. Different. Right. Yeah, it made a lot more sense in my head last night. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and like the same thing can happen with psychedelics, but I'm, you know, are you disciplined in the writing? Are you trying to do that like every day? morning night i would really like to be but i'm not at all um and it's kind of funny that like i'm i'm like releasing a book but like i haven't these are there's a compilation of essays over the last five years and so the most recent essay that i wrote was the question concerning was i called the question concerning bitcoin which i think i probably wrote about a year ago and then like i have a bunch of unpublished stuff that i'm like you know it's still kind of gobbledygook and so i'm i'm trying to flush it out more but uh so much of what i'm dealing with is, is this strange esoteric stuff that keeps leading down different offshoots and rabbit holes and yeah yeah it's mind-blowing and yeah it, you think you're going one direction and you like come back from the other direction it's yeah yeah you're like how did yeah but, <laughs> yeah um dude that is so cool what if you had this last question i'll let you go i know i catch you for a no, long time no, no. If you had to like just distill your Bitcoin journey up until this point and you've got everything you've learned, you're trying to compress it into an elevator pitch for a no coiner and you're you're not trying to, you're trying to not scare them off, but you're trying to not, you know, like how, 
I don't know, a couple of minute, like, like what is your crystallization of the Bitcoin thesis? I guess we could say. I mean, it, re- it really depends on sort of the, the person that I'm talking to. Right. Like I, as always. Okay. I, I don't try to orange people, orange pill people anymore just because I feel like I'm bad at it because like I go in this crazy philosophical direction that people are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, so it really depends. Well, on let's assume, let's assume you've got a philosophy student maybe on the elevator with you and he's curious and wants to hear what you have to say about it. Okay. I, I think pretty much what I'd just say is I'd go, look, like I understand that magic internet money doesn't seem like it's going to be the vehicle for people to discover what truth and meaning is in this world, but it truly is because when we start to look at what the concept of wealth is, this is a very large and difficult concept that we've obscured and obfuscated with money so deeply that most people think that having a hundred dollars is, is having that much in wealth when that's something totally different, you know? And so it's only through when we start really questioning and asking ourselves, what is money? Why does this thing have value? Is it going to keep its value? And truly following those questions and allowing for ourselves that process, that's the only way that, in my opinion, people are going to understand why Bitcoin's important. You know, like I, I don't have the ability to fill in the, the Swiss cheese holes that they need to fill in to understand Bitcoin. Only they can do it. And that's why it's so exciting to have content from you and all sorts of other people is that it's really important that people approach Bitcoin from where they're at, you know, like more than any other people i've been talking to to regenerative agriculture and farmer people out here who their approach to bitcoin makes so much sense to them because of the way that they see the long-term perspective of needing to grow food or raise cattle and the relationship that it has to money and so i think the the real importance is the willingness to actually question in a meaningful way to 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 start truly thinking for yourself that allows for you inquiry, real inquiry, because you need to know, you know, and, and in all honesty, I'd say like, look, if you, if you're here to get rich, like I can't help you, you know, like buy Bitcoin and hold it. That's the best advice I have for you. But like, if you want to understand what money and wealth is, there is a plethora of information out there available for you. And I really encourage you to seek out those individual questions that you personally have about it. Thank you for pointing that young philosophy student to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so go watch Rob's podcast. He has tons of excellent information. There's one guy that just won't shut up about that question. <laughs> yeah. And he'll just keep going with it. Yeah. Eric, man, thank you for doing this. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I have a blog. It's just cryptosovereignty.org. And that is also the coming title of my book that I'm publishing with Bitcoin Media. And so uh, on my blog, you can find most of my essays. I'm going to consolidate that into a book going to be promoting it over the next year and really using that as my foundation for my next book, which will come after that, which I'm probably going to call like the general theory of Bitcoin. Um, you know, and like not to be too ambitious with it, but, um, yeah, I think, I, I think that might hold for it, but, uh, yeah. And so, and you can also just find me on Twitter. It's my name, Eric Kaysen, E-R-I-K-C-A-S-O-N on Twitter. Awesome, dude. This is so good. I'm like, very pumped to read your book now um and yeah honored to know you and call you a friend hey likewise man and uh i, I really appreciated both this conversation and what we were talking about before yep and we'll be doing another hodl hang soon yeah we've been trying to do it like it's we we 
like I've been the worst because like there's a number of life events that keep having me cancel. So hopefully we'll we'll get it together soon. I think we've all canceled at least twice at this point. It's just I think, but I think John's making the joke. Why don't we just schedule another one so we have something to cancel? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, hopefully we'll actually get it together in the next few weeks. Maybe, awesome. Maybe longer, but all right, dude. Thank you again. 